Hello and welcome to China Dispatches, a European Chamber podcast that shares on-the-ground insights from European business leaders and experts on doing business in China. I'm your host, Marianne Neut. The European Chamber was founded in 2000 by 51 member companies that shared a goal of establishing a common voice for the various business sectors of the European Union and European businesses operating in China. One founding member went on to serve as the Chamber's president for four terms spanning over a decade and a half, all while balancing an enormous workload, dividing his time between Chamber tasks and his day job as the head of BASF in Beijing. After stepping down as Chamber president in May, he left big shoes to fill, as well as a legacy that will carry on informing the development of business ties between the EU and China for years to come. In today's episode of China Dispatches, we will look back at President Yagutka's prolific work at the Chamber and the future he envisages for the organization at a time when EU-China relations are at a critical juncture. It gives me great pleasure to welcome today's guest, President Yagutka. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you for the invitation. As I mentioned in my introduction, you were one of the founding members of the Chamber and served as president for several terms. During its 23-year history, you have witnessed the Chamber grow from an idea into an organization representing over 1,700 members across China. What aspects of the Chamber's work are you most proud of? Well, thank you, Marianne. It's, I can't believe it. It's uh, now nearly 23 years ago that uh, 50 of my colleagues and myself stood in the Kapinski Hotel with Ambassador Endymion Wilkinson founding this chamber. And it was just such a moment where I remember very clearly when we were asked, uh, how uh, will you look like in a couple of years? I said to a reporter, we want a benchmark with MCHAM. And MCHAM was listening to this and said, these boys must be kidding us. And now I think we're pretty much in the same league, if not even better than MCHAM. I think that uh, the area where we can be most proud of is uh, the national voice uh, that we have created. We were a nationwide chamber. Uh, now, of course, in nine offices in seven chapters. And I think uh, we have definitely made this happen over the local position papers uh, where we have developed this thing, or I was privileged in order to facilitate this uh, since uh, 2014. Again and again, little baby steps in the right direction to actually make the chapters speak up. So it was not just Radio Beijing, it was the local engagement with government, it was then basically the media, and to the end point where in particular in the COVID time, we always had nationwide uh, media conferences where the press loved it to hear just how bad is it really in Tianjin and Chengdu and other places. I'm most proud about the fact that this is the most unified chamber in the whole of things. And I can't believe, as you pointed out, four terms, one as vice president, three as president, and it has been an incredible ride. As you mentioned, the chamber grew both in size and in reach in these years, and these are certainly achievements that are worth celebrating. But in order to promote further development, we also need to take a look at potential weaknesses. So where are the areas where you think the chamber can still make progress? If we look in content, we have been doing well, but I think we can do better. Uh, and that really boils down to how are members contributing? How is the rate of return in our questionnaires? How is the engagement on the working groups? How is the local engagement in the chapters? 
how many people are stepping up in order to be, for example, running for board positions. It's all about contributions, all about participation. There we can do better, I think. We should not become complacent. I think we're in a good spot. I dropped some ideas recently, uh, such as a survey about what is the impact of our investment and our trading in China on our headquarters and our regions back home because I saw that we don't have resources and the ability in squeezing the information out of our members. So I guess it's really member engagement uh, where we can get more out of it. So you just mentioned dropping some ideas. How far do you go before you drop these ideas? Well, it, they said about Winston Churchill that he has 10 good ideas every day, but luckily only two work out. So uh, because it always means an idea that you've pushed through, particularly if your president, of course, puts huge pressure on resources, people, uh, also sometimes financials in order to get uh, partners going. So in a way, I dropped this again, this study I felt was important also to showcase what are we actually bringing to the Chinese economy, taxes, innovation carbon neutrality, for example. We don't have real good data on this one. How many jobs do we create in Europe because we're investing over here? I couldn't find a partner. And that's, I think, something at least I was trying to sort out in my last, my third presidency, that I need a collaborator. I remember very well, I got into this job uh, late May 2019, and I was pushing for a study on social credit uh, system. Uh, most people were scratching their head about what is the issue there. And I could only get this going because we had great partners in analytics that have done this kind of stuff for about two years already. So the way sometimes you just have to find great ideas in order to then see how you can match with the data set and the member's opinion and then get it running. And we got it out in August. So within three months, we had a new project out and it was just incredible. People went from head scratching to sort of putting their hands over their heads and said, my God, I have to audit my organizations. And it really integrated a new industry, the, the social credit system industry. I think we can do more, but I guess in most areas, it only works with collaborators. We have to attract by just coming up with great stuff. Otherwise, they won't work with us. Just mentioned in your answer, your previous presidencies. And um, can you tell us a bit about how your most recent term as president compared with your previous ones? Well, my first term was in 2007 as president. I was vice president two years prior, and it was all about consolidation. Most people have forgotten that we had a, a rule in the European Chamber. You can only join the European Chamber if you are a member of a bilateral chamber. That was put in the articles in 2000 in order to pacify the French, German, Dutch, uh, Italian chambers because they were really worried. And I always felt this is strange because how can you be worried about competition? You can simply get better if you just have better products to offer for your members. And there was a vote in 2008, and it was a very bitter vote. The bilateral chambers went against it, uh, but the members uh, were with us, and 91% were voting in order to break that rule. And ever since we're free and the bilateral chambers didn't take any harm, uh, and we're better off. That was a consolidation period of time. And the second uh, part, uh, I guess, uh, we had discontinued the kind of position paper and confidence survey at the same time that was done until 2007. And we broke this in order to have two products out in order to get a broader coverage and then one in fall, one in spring. And then in the second term, of course, it was all about, for me at least, uh, local position papers. It was all about making it a more of a nationwide chamber 
and give the chambers a voice. That was partly done because in the lead up to 2014, when I was running again, we had noises about local chapters wanting to become more independent. And I saw that as a threat that actually the chamber will not be stronger, but weaker uh, because of that. And uh, again, if there's one success, it's the local position paper. It's over time building up media profile, but you can only build media profile if you have to say something, if you can actually showcase something. And that's all about content. Could you mention some examples about where the chamber moved the needle the most? Besides making lots of noises, producing many pages, I think we actually get things done. For me, two areas stick out. Uh, one clearly was the area where the capital transfer was impaired in late 2016. I didn't see any resolution letters to the relevant authorities were unanswered. I went public in the Financial Times, ended up on page one, and next day I had my appointment, and six weeks later the problem was resolved. And I really look back very fondly, in particular on the Central Bank of China, in particular on the State Administration of Foreign Exchange. Chairman Pan was there. He was definitely under pressure because of the Financial Times article. And I would say that it was delightful engagement in such a small setting we got something really big settled. The other one was we really tried very hard in order to change the zero COVID policy. We went public in very strange manner because our secret letter got leaked. It was a social media hit at that time, really broadband. And it was very much welcomed by a couple of interlocutors in certain ministries who said, you know, great, you kickstarted a policy debate. But we did move the needle. It had to take Omicron to take over the country in December in order to change that. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. In your capacity as president, you had several meetings with uh, key interlocutors from both the EU and China. You discussed the challenges faced by European companies in China with former Chinese Premier Li Keqiang in 2022, and most recently briefed European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen about the Chinese business landscape at the start of her official visit to Beijing. What was your process for preparing for these high-level meetings, given that you often only have limited time to deliver the Chamber's messages? Well, to be in May 2022 with the Prime Minister of China, Li Keqiang, it takes 20 years to prepare. Uh, it takes really uh, credibility, accountability and relevance. I think the authorities have realized uh, that we are noted in the capitals of China, that we have traction with members, that we are extremely engaging with the media. We matter. We are on the radar. And I think that's really the precursor in order to get these appointments and to be at the top slot. And again and again, we get the appointments many others don't get. Particularly, the bilateral chambers count on us as we are the advocacy group and we are not in trade promotion, that we are the ones who are visibly addressing these areas where we have common concerns. So, yes, it takes 20 minutes and in many ways it takes uh, our staff quite a while. In particular, I would like to thank uh, Madame Zhang Ziting for this. But uh, it is all about to build up uh, your brand yourself. And if you're important enough for the interlocutors, then you get your appointments. And why do you think we have been able to maintain such good access to both Chinese and European authorities? Because we're fact-rich. We really matter if we are getting our stuff right. We come out with uh, 430 pages in the English version of the position paper. 
And uh, I think in all my years, every year, just one or two cases, we get sort of uh, reminded by Chinese government interlocutors there, there was a little mistake in there, sometimes even down to the footnote, meaning whatever we say is based on facts. It might be uncomfortable for Chinese interlocutors, and it might be sort of strange for Chinese interlocutors in, in media, as well as, of course, some of our members, uh, when we are pinpointing this, it's like, how oh, can you be so critical? But I think it is also clear to everyone that we care about China's reform ability. We don't just do this in order to look smart, in order to make China look uh, less smart. It's all about that China shall not become complacent and that China actually should have the ability in order to get better. You cannot get better by praising what you have achieved already. You can only get better by addressing the shortcomings. I think we get the access, we get the credibility by being fact-rich. And that's all about, I think, the core of the chamber, which is the working groups. They give us the fodder, which we then have to sell. As someone who doesn't shy away from saying these uncomfortable truths, have you noticed any changes in how you were received by Chinese authorities over the years? Clearly, it's more easy. It is more comforting. Uh, I think in the beginning, I remember I was called in a couple of times in some ministries uh, being viewed as someone who should watch the language. And I think they got used to us uh, that actually the language is not meant to offend them, but actually pinpoint where they can actually improve things. And uh, we replicated this not only on the national level, also on the local level. I remember very well uh, many, many years ago uh, when we came up with the first draft of the local position paper in Chengdu, how jittery and nervous the local government was and how nervous the local chair was. I remember very clearly in Tianjin uh, where the local chair was nearly told that he should not launch it. And I said to the chair at that time, you know, it's okay, don't, don't launch it in Tianjin, I'm going to do it in Beijing. And then 24 hours, uh, the government says, fine, 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 just do it. And now you have a situation where the Chengdu government is looking forward to the next position paper. We had a great meeting with the vice governor in Sichuan. We had a great meeting with uh, Dovcom there. They have an illuminating person, Mr. Chen, who's really eager to learn where he can improve things. And the same in Tianjin. The last Tianjin position paper was extremely well received by the vice mayor. Uh, they came to our launch. They had a speech there. So in essence, it feels nearly like, you know, if I don't have a new position paper in, say, in another city, then maybe that city is viewed to be less relevant. Uh, so in a way, we created something which creates identity, but also a connection with the local government. And I think that's what it's all about, is collaboration. So as you mentioned, the Chamber's wide selection of publications are a valuable reference point at these meetings. And in your last presidency, the Chamber launched a record number of thematic reports. Was this planned or did you simply encounter more issues that call for more detailed analysis? Well, I ran on a ticket called content and I felt very strongly that we could do better. We just had, I think in the previous administration, one paper out reflecting on reform efforts. Uh, and I felt like we can do better, we can be more specific. So I came up with this uh, social credit system idea. Uh, I felt very strongly about decoupling and about the Belt and Road Initiative. I was trying to sort of catch themes that are sort of discussed broadly and where I had a lot of engagement with media in order to showcase, you know, the chamber members have something to contribute and something to say about this. What I learned about this is, first of all, 
listen to the media. It's not just they listen to us and broadcast. It's just talk to journalists, see where there's an interest, see there is traction, and then listen also to our members where they have a problem in order to get that addressed. For example, we launched in December 2021 a standards report, a standards high on the agenda. Many of these high-tech companies, China challenging the international standards uh, order. But again, I also learned one thing is do not launch in the first two months of every year because that seems to be a dead spot in the attention span. I'm really a bit upset still that our Belt and Road Initiative was basically going down in flames after COVID came up in the beginning of 2020. How could we see that COVID comes up? Decoupling was launched in early 2021 also didn't get the traction I think it deserves. So maybe if the new Exco comes together and looks for a topic, I would call it de-risking. What are the challenges on de-risking? It's just about that you have to come up with something which is being talked about in policy circles, media, among your members, package it, get the most out of it, and then you really get going. You mentioned a couple of these reports, but which ones were the most well received during meetings with different stakeholders? I would say by any measure, it was March 2017, made in China 2025. I mean, just blockbuster. I mean, I couldn't see that it has such an impact uh, in Beijing as well as in capitals around the world. It was required reading in the White House. You know, who would expect that? It was great, but it also was great because, and I can say it now, it was based on the education that I received from a former minister of China. He was in retirement. And he was my political coach uh, because I never wanted to just come up with a paper in order to create noises. Uh, I wanted impact and I wanted to help the reformers in the system to have arguments, to have relevance and have uh, basically something where they can just work on. And he gave me the storyline. I admit it was not my own. Uh, it was brilliant. And uh, we sold it uh, as Made in China 2025. It was a bureaucratic over-engineered scheme. Why not leaving it up to companies and consumers to decide market shares in the future and the danger it causes in order to eventually cause overcapacity? And I would say if you still read it today, it's just brilliant. So we were discussing thematic reports, but what about the other publications? Which one did you find to be the most impactful? Well, impactful in the sense of repetitive, sort of reminding everyone where we stand clearly is the position paper. I mean, it's just six months of intense labor to get it out. I marvel at the working groups. I marvel at the staff at the chamber in order to get this going. I was always in agony when I was then, as president, called up in order to find a philosophical threat and a narrative in order to eventually sell these 400 pages. I think we did quite well two years ago when we labeled it uh, as danger of self-reliance, uh, China going into autarky, and it earned me uh, a meeting with the Moscow minister. And Mr. Wang Wentao was wonderful. I was the only foreigner dignified by him in order to meet him in 2021, and simply because I was raising a topic which he found very interesting, self-reliance hurts China. And I went there and he showcased me how much he has read this copy and how much they have digested it. And he says, I'm also worried about this. And sometimes good things come of unexpected ways to you. So I addressed this kind of self-reliance and stuff. And I mentioned by the side, you know, we can't get teachers in. It took us four weeks uh, in order to get a teacher in. Before COVID, now it's five months. Uh, would you help us? And again, Mofcom has been a great collaborator over the years, particularly in COVID. I must also mention here Vice Minister Wang Shouwen 
they got us the ATPU letters for getting teachers in. They took over a study that uh, the International Schools Association has done for me. And the second, and possibly for all the members most relevant, is I could address the individual income tax on rents and school fees, which was a threat. And I credit uh, Minister Wang in order to actually maintain the status we had before in late December 2021. And now I'm very, very eager uh, that actually, as it runs out this December, that it gets renewed again. So they, because he realized, as I was showcasing it, that taxation on this kind of high cost uh, items will wipe out the expert community. So in short, you know, you talk about A and you might even get B. And as president of the chamber, when talking to the ministries you just mentioned and the old stakeholders, you were at the head of an organization that represents over 1,700 members. They are from different sectors and they have varying interests. So how did you approach the task of conveying a unified message? Well, the message sounds unified, but I can assure you it is it is laborious to get there. And you take a lot of shortcuts and risks in order to sort of uh, make it into an easy messaging and uh, something which sounds like it's going to be the European stance. I mean, come on, 1,700, 1,800 members in nine cities, there's no way you can have a consensus. And if you would have a consensus, it would be a one-liner. We want to do more in China. So in essence, uh, it it takes a bit of uh, a feel for uh, where the direction is going. You have to sense of where your members are by listening to your advisory council. That is a very important sounding board for us. Then, of course, you discuss this uh, among your peers in EXCO in order to see where things are heading. And then, of course, you have flash surveys, the one that we had on the 5th of May uh, last year. It gives us an indication. Survey is always a good indicator of where members are heading. But still, it leaves a lot of gaps and a lot of puzzlements uh, in order to actually get the messaging straight. And then it's the art of putting it into a candid, pithy narrative in order for everyone to understand where it's going. You have to be colorful in your language in order to find traction. You can't just replicate 430 pages in order to get the message across. So we had to come up with three words in order to encapsulate what we want to say on 430 pages. And that was the ideology trumps the economy. There's no way you can find consensus among members on this one. But you think that you get it quite right in actually what it's all about. And boy, did we score. You are also very well known for your engagements with media. And certainly the Chamber's media coverage has grown substantially over the years, with the number of media mentions exceeding 1,000 in 2022. What was your strategy for media engagement in your role as president? And what benefits do you think the strong media presence brings to the Chamber's work? Well, friends would say that maybe I have a very high vanity level and have to be in the newspapers printed in order to find my name there again. There might be some truth to it. But at the same time, it is definitely something about accessibility. It is sort of like people call me up on my mobile phone. And in essence, I would say 80% of what comes across is based on a three to five minute phone call. It needs candor. It needs authenticity. And uh, definitely it needs something where they say, "Okay, I can sell this to my editor in order to get going. Uh, We have to also clearly understand that uh, this media uh, engagement is not just totally lopsided. Very often I get the first intelligence, the first news from the media. They are my coaches. They are my trusted partners. When we do press conferences, I made it a habit in the chamber many years ago that we have a dummy round, meaning we are testing our product. 
and uh, the dummy being myself, that I'm in the first round trying to sort of see that's our study, that's our paper, and this is what we think is important, and then listen to them. Is that really well sold? And in most cases, actually, they say it's a good study, but you sold it really poorly. And then you go into a second round and you sort of improve based on your first knowledge and you can sense that we're getting in the right direction. And normally the third attempt is always, first of all, you're already familiar with your shortcomings and you can sort of be more self-confident of addressing it differently and you found your language. So in a way, it's really, as we do in business, just listening to your customers and the customers is media. You have also been a big supporter of our events, bringing world-renowned economists, diplomats, book authors and academics to speak to members. Can you recall a chamber event or guest speaker that left a particularly strong impression on you? Yeah, I have I have good friends and uh, I'm very proud to say that the likes of uh, Frank Fukuyama, uh, the likes uh, of Prime Minister Drinda from uh, Slovakia or Katainen, uh, former vice president of the European Commission, have been supporters of our events. I remember I was really proud about my book events where I had former Vice Chancellor Joschka Fischer reviewing a book by a friend of mine, Marike Olberg. So I had Martin Wolf reviewing Michael Pettis and whoever is in business knows Michael Wolf. So friends were helping me. But events sometimes get under your skin. And uh, there are three events, I would say. To me, the most memorable one uh, was uh, many years ago uh, in the Kempinski Ballroom. We had Sidney Rittenberg. Sidney Rittenberg, an American, he was one of those who actually did the long march with Mao Zedong. He was then with Mao on the veranda looking down on Tiananmen Square. It's this iconic picture with the two of them. Uh, and he was in prison for 10 years as a collaborator with anti-communist forces. He came out and he still was in business until he passed away a couple of years ago. The ballroom in the Kempinski was packed and Sydney was giving his life story. It really got under your skin. And then the second, I remember it was economist, uh, Maui Schur, who was in the Western ballroom many years ago and packed again, absolutely full. And it was the most candid assessment of any economist I ever heard in China. And I was very proud of him. And it definitely uh, is an event which I think today can be hardly replicated. And the most embarrassing moment for myself, and I remember uh, this event clearly because I was absolutely in a panic mode, was in Brussels. There was Boshi Lai and Mandelson sitting behind me in Brussels. I was the keynote speaker and I had prepared slides. And for whatever reason, the staff in the commission has put up the wrong slideshow. And you depend on these slides. I didn't take notes along, of course. And secondly, it was very colorful. So I saw nothing was working and decided to keep talking colorful as much as possible in order to get the message across, trying to recall what I actually wanted to say. And you know, to recall what you wanted to say uh, when you are full of adrenaline and you have two ministers looking down on you is not an easy feat. I was possibly sweating profoundly and uh, got this over with and sat down and thought, Jesus Christ, you know, how was that perceived? And I remember Mandelson came to me and says that was the most astounding uh, speech he ever heard outside the House of Commons because actually I made it happen without the slides in anything, just impromptu, so to speak. Uh, and I must say, to get praise uh, from such a, such a master of eloquence like Peter Mandelson really made my day. Wow, that's a, an amazing story. And actually, it reminds me of something you said earlier about how when something is a success, then you can get praise. But of course, when something is a failure, then you also have to bear the responsibility for it. 
And there's a saying that it can be very lonely at the top. So did acting as president of the European Chamber ever make you feel isolated? Well, certainly it is It is a lot of pressure on you. You have to, again, uh, find a language for 1,800 members. You have to sell it. You have to be the front man. Uh, and you always run the risk of being misquoted, misunderstood. Uh, it's sometimes quite difficult. And I think what really helps there is that you have a partner. In my case, it's my wife. Galina has always been there in order to share, and she was always totally secretive. In most cases, in very complicated situation, I could spill the beans to her, and I knew exactly it's not going to end up with any other person. And, and you have to have that trusted partner or trusted friend in order to actually get this load off your chest. But at the same time, I must say, three times president, I had always an exco, which in most cases was a great sounding board and great support. I never had any stabbing me from behind. And again, this kind of certainty that your colleagues are with you definitely also makes you feel you're not totally alone. To move on to some of the most positive aspects of being the president, what will you miss most about working as the president of the chamber? I think it's meeting and uh, working with the staff. It's wonderful to have... Uh, yeah, they're mostly in my children or even grandchildren age, people that are young, ambitious, curious, want to do something in the interface of business and politics. Uh, I'm going to miss the staff tremendously. Uh, it is something where I could actually feel I could also grow and, and learn just by seeing these people have this kind of intensity. And I think, again, I challenge myself. I work hard. I try to showcase that. And I can see with great joy that people are Actually, all of a sudden, when they look back at something achieved, they say, my God, did I do this? Uh, and it's, it's, that's, for me, always the biggest reward. When people sense they can actually do way more than they thought they could do. Of course, I, I'm going to certainly miss the interlocutors such as von der Leyen and Baerbock and all these VIPs on the Chinese side, uh, particularly Minister Wang Wintao. I'm going to miss the media attention to some extent, I guess. Uh, but overall, I think it's the, it's the ability of working with young people. And that's maybe when I'm going to retire from China for good in, in summer next year, I will leave China with BSF. I want to carry on working with young people. And it has to be something where I can use my brain and inspire people. And uh, looking ahead, what do you see as the biggest challenge that the chamber now faces? I think the ability to communicate and instill confidence and discussions in the leadership. Again, the leadership has rearranged the furniture. It is a far more centric organization in many ways towards the president. That might give them more impact and make decision-making easier. But again, it takes away a lot of space for policy debates. And that's where we come into the picture. We are giving ideas for a policy debate. And again, my engagement in the past, particularly with Vice Premier, Hu Zhonghua was always very rewarding because I could sense that he was not just listening, he was engaging. Prime Minister Li Qiang was always a keen reader of our position paper, believe it or not, in English. And so do we still have this kind of engagement? Is the new prime minister going to look at our position paper? Are the new ministers eager in order to listen to us? Or will our new leadership in the European chamber be less candid and less vocal about representing the concerns of our membership? I hope not, but it might be the case. So in a way, we can still steer it ourselves. It's in our hands, and I hope that the new leadership will find the courage the wisdom and find the language in order to represent our membership. 
now that you just mentioned the new leadership, at this critical juncture with China reopening after three years of isolation and EU-China relations facing an unprecedented number of problems, what advice would you give to your successor? Well, that's always uh, the case when U.S. presidents are leaving office, they leave behind an envelope. I was thinking about leaving an envelope behind the chamber of whoever is going to be president. My advice would be stay authentic. Just be yourself and uh, just uh, use your strengths and don't copycat uh, anybody, certainly not me. It is uh, not a job. The European Chamber presidency is not a job. Uh, A, it doesn't get paid, unfortunately. Uh, Second, it is a passion. It is something where you have to be totally passionate in order to actually find the courage and the energy in order to get this organization inspired and uh, focused. And then learn. I think uh, the most important thing that I've found is like we have two ears, one mouth. And even though members just hear me speaking nonstop in whatever format, the most important to me was to listen. Uh, to learn where the issues are, to talk to members, to understand also from media uh, where the concerns are, to understand where our policymakers uh, back home are agonizing about, the kind of space they have, the kind of uh, possibilities we could derive from this one. This job requires you to learn and listen far more than you actually communicate yourself. Certainly a very intense job, but uh, what does the future hold for you now that you are relieved from your chamber duties, including 6 a.m. media interviews and back-to-back meetings with government officials? Yeah, I must really thank my own company, BSF, for being the partner and the supporter that it always was in all these 10 years in the front line. And don't forget, I was three years German chamber chairman, uh, so I had uh, 13 years frontman experience and the company has been always backing me up. I always try to keep the company away from this, but of course, size-wise, it's a, sometimes very complicated. And I never, ever lost my priority ranking. It was always BSF first, uh, and then the chamber second, uh, as hard as it might sound to you. But uh, it was clearly that I have to do my job first, and my job got paid. That left very awkward timing for me because uh, I was very engaged uh, with the chamber, particularly during the daytime. And that left me getting up very early in the morning. And then after I was trying to be at home for dinner with the boys, go back to work in order to do my real stuff. It is, it is a lot of workload. The good news is you really get better at prioritizing. Uh, you get better at doing your job 80% instead of agonizing a couple of more hours to make it 100%. You actually know how to draw resources. You know how to ask friends to give you better data sets. It's just being more efficient. And you would be surprised uh, that how much you can get done. There's the saying, you know, if you want to get things done, ask for the busy person. Now that you will actually have more time to relax, what are some of the things that you look forward to to doing with the time that now you will uh, finally have? (laughs) I certainly spent more time with my wife. Uh, Again, uh, the family suffered certainly attention time and uh, particularly over the last three years as we virtually had no vacation, as we couldn't travel anywhere. And vacation in China always meant like you're in the same time zone, there's always something pressing. I will certainly now start reading more books than I buy. Uh, I have a bit of an overload there back home. I will certainly find the time in order 
to have a whiskey in the evening uh, because long hours means that you have to remain sober. And jazz. I think it's really, I love jazz. It's my inspiration. I find more time in order to listen to music or go to concerts late in the evening as I don't have to get up 5.30 every morning. Sounds like you have a lot of great things lined up already. I wish you all the best for this next chapter. That's all for today. Thank you again, Jörg, for joining. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to China Dispatches, recommend to your colleagues and friends, and share on social media. Also, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can find contact details in the show notes. This is Marianne Nagy from China Dispatches. Thanks for listening. <laughs>